So over the next few weeks, oh, can I see that uh, thing? Because yeah, I got my, my scripture, which because I literally just like copy and paste it in here, some of them are a wee bit small, but just in spirit, the scriptures are on the screen. Just understand. Um, I'll bring you binoculars next time so you can see. <laughs> All right, over the next couple of weeks, what I wanted to do is I wanted to focus on um, a series of messages that I'm going to call The Way. And the whole purpose in getting into these is to actually start looking very critically at the things that were actually a part of The Way, you know, Christ's way of of living and teaching and the way that, you know, we look at things that are in scriptures, you know, things that might be, you know, misunderstood or things that um, maybe have not been totally misunderstood, but have been a little bit maybe clouded or diluted a little bit just because we do as a part of just being human beings who live in a society and a world and all that. Uh, it means that the way that we exercise our religion is, uh, kind of fuses with our actual belief system. And sometimes the two interact in a very good way. It helps us have these very uh, legitimate experiences with God. Um, uh, I, I think about how I was, I was just telling somebody this last week about the church when I was a kid I grew up in and how like it, you know, in the area that is kind of behind the altar was where you had like the choir and they had like these dual pipe sets on this organ. And then it had pipes that were on the, on the, back face and then in the back of the church they had these antiphonal trumpets that stuck out of the wall like that and that the the organ player was just an amazing organ player and especially around easter he would uh you know when, usually when he would do like uh uh either like the the um you know kind of postlude you know where everybody would would process out you'd have this like gorgeous experience of like the uh, alkalites, uh, you know, kind of like holding the, you know, usually would hold like a like a lit light on the end of a brass thing, you know, to light all the candles. And so they would, uh, that you'd extinguish all the candles and you'd take like the light of like the last like candle there that was like the kind of like Christ candle and then you'd process out with it. Then a Bible, big brass coated Bible and everything and the cross and all that. So it's a Lutheran church, but it's just this gorgeous procession. And when the organ player would pull the stops on it and lay into it, gorgeous. Now you look at that and go, none of that's in the Bible, but it's a gorgeous thing. And you absolutely would be hard pressed to say this. People do not have some very legitimate experiences with God in those surroundings and everything. So sometimes the way that we practice religion, the way that we kind of uh, uh, mix together our culture and our traditions and our practices with our beliefs, it could be a good thing, but sometimes it could be a bad thing. Sometimes we can lead ourselves into thinking things are true that maybe aren't true, or we can ignore things that are right there in the Bible that are just kind of waiting for us to kind of pluck them out of the air and to be able to benefit from the blessings of what God's communicating for us. But because of the way we kind of stubbornly read the Bible today, you know, and kind of insist that we know how this stuff works, we kind of miss it. We miss some of the, the um, you know, some of the big, big lessons in there. So today what I want to talk specifically about was I want to talk about um, kind of the difficulty in understanding the Bible itself. I mean, just as like a piece of literature, think of it this way. If I were to give you any piece of literature that existed somewhere 1000 BC, we'll say, and just hand it in front of you and give you like a direct English translation and said, there you go, go read it and go understand it. It's right there in black and white, it's right there in English, go, go read it, go understand it. It would read like hot garbage. And that's why frequently what you have is you actually have multiple people will translate works of literature. I can remember reading, uh, read the Divine Comedy, um, which is, by the way, not a comedy, so don't get thrown 
away off of the uh, thing. It's about like hell and stuff. But um, when you uh, read this, you know, I wrote, uh, I was reading a translation by, that was by uh, Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, right? You know, big author, right? So, but it was, it was his translation of it. And you looked at it and said, but there was, there was a whole host of other translations you could read as well. And depending on which translation you read, sometimes the things hit a little bit differently. And that is not nearly as old as some of the things that are in the Bible. But yet, for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, so many of us will stubbornly hold up our little, little leather-bound thing with the gold pages and say, well, it's right here. Look, this is right here. Just read it. And it's right there. And that's, that's all the stuff and everything. It's all you need to know. And um, don't get me wrong. I'm also the kind of person that, like, in the past has sometimes, like, uh, you know, to an extent, kind of lambasted sometimes little like prepackaged lessons and everything. Uh, maybe even being guilty of having a little bit of this mentality of like, well, the Bible's right there. You just need to read it. But you do need to have this supplementary stuff sometimes to help you understand the context because context really does matter. The way that I put it to, uh, I was talking with this um his personality online that, that I'll, uh, uh, that, that I'll look at his stuff, you know, little videos he'll make and everything. Uh, he's a very like fundamentalist, literal type of person, but you know, it's kind of funny because he, he agreed with this statement I made that, um, I say, you know, it's funny because I used to always just kind of hinge on that phrase and say, it's the inerrant word of God, which nothing wrong with that. It's still an accurate statement. But I said, I've, I've, I've gone from saying that to now saying the Bible is the inerrant word of God as written or as inspired, you know? And the reason why I've said that is because there is something to how it's written and to how it is read by us today, where sometimes you end up missing things. And I think people don't understand exactly how hard specifically ancient translation is. It's hard enough to translate things today between languages. Well, we can kind of get around that, right? Because we live in the same time. We have some common experiences. Now imagine you take all those common experiences completely out of the way. And now all of a sudden, it's not just knowing the language, it's also knowing where the people are coming from who spoke the language. And it's also kind of understanding the things around them. And if they're like kind of ulterior meanings between things, and there's all this stuff. So a couple of things that make the Bible hard to understand is first of all, you have to struggle with this whole oral versus written tradition kind of thing. But the reality is that the Bible for the longest time was something that was really passed down orally. And even though we know that certain little bits of it, fragments were written down, what we think of as the Bible for the most part was either in entirety or stitched together as something that was an oral tradition. Did you ever wonder why Moses appears for most of the time in the desert to pretty much chill in his tent with God and just go over scripture over and over and over again? Well, it's because they didn't write this mess down once. There was an amount of trying to say it needs to be like there needs to be this almost obsessive attention to the detail and the accuracy of it and all that because that's how it was going to be. If you think about it, it only makes sense because you have all these people who came out of Egypt as slaves who uh, didn't have an amazing, astounding literacy program. So it had to be something that was orally understood and orally known. So you have this, this thing that's mostly either in its entirety or stitched together orally pretty much all the way up until mm, 600 BC or something, which sounds old to us until you consider that the events of the Bible basically go back somewhere between 4,000 BC and 4,500 BC, which means there's almost 4,000 years of not writing the stuff down. And so in how that stuff is told and explained and all that, it's just, think about how much differently we speak than we write.
And so you end up having to say like, okay, now all of a sudden there's, you know, understanding those things helps to reveal different things uh, about what's going on in the scriptures. The other thing that you have to keep in mind too is that there's multiple authors in the Bible. Across the entire Bible, it's estimated there's somewhere around 40 distinct authors. And that, that number kind of varies a little bit depending on who you talk to because sometimes there was things like with the, the, um, the, the, the epistles of John where uh, some people think like, well, it was just John. Some people think that, you know, it was actually like three different individuals that were uh, kind of like disciples of John, so to speak. So there's a lot of these questions, but in the Old Testament, you have like 30 different authors of those 40. And so of those 30 different authors, some of them had, had different ways of speaking. Some of them had different ways of writing. Some of them were very flowery and allegorical. You know, they would use hyperbole to make a point. Some of them were very literal. And so what danger, hap what, we, what danger we find ourselves in is sometimes when we get these verses, we'll put them up right beside each other and then try you know, drawing a straight line in between them and saying like, oh, well then this is what the Bible is telling me. When you can't do that because it's two different people writing, it'd be the same thing as getting somebody who was uh, writing a documentary for National Geographic on what happened in ancient Greece and then comparing that to the script to the movie 300, which by the way is an amazing movie. So like you, you, if you got those two things and you put them side by side and said, well, the script of the movie 300 says this about the Greeks and then this documentary says this about the Greeks, therefore I'm going to draw a conclusion. You come up with some wild conclusions. So you got to be careful with that when it comes to the Bible. There's also these lexicon mismatches that we sometimes have. And a good example of that is this. In our own language, think about how we use the word family. I'll talk frequently about our church family as a family. This is our family. Sometimes your family is literally just who's in your household. But like even in my own household, when my parents came and moved up, you know, and we're living inside of our household, I still refer to that as my family. So you know, the context, you know, of what that includes actually changes. Uh, you know, for a lot of us, when I, you know, no doubt when you're going and spending time with your uh, 10,000 grandkids, then, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, no doubt that's your family, right? You know, you don't have like a different word you use. It's just, is my family. But, you know, you go to a lot of cultures, even today, contemporary with us, and they have different words for those different types of family. And so you end up having sometimes this kind of lexicon mismatch. You can actually tell a lot about ancient cultures based on their language um, when you look at what concepts they break down. One of the ways that people will determine if like a culture used to be like at a place on a coast when they're inland is they'll look at their language and they'll say, well, you know what? This culture that is deep inland away from the coastline has dozens of different words for fish. They don't just say fish. They actually have a different word that means fishing on a river and a different word that means fishing in the ocean and a different word that means fishing in a boat versus fishing from the shore. And they have different words for all those things. And that signifies that that culture was around a coastline at some point in time. So you see there's these lexicon things that, again, start actually telling us a lot about the people who are writing the words down. And that's why people study this stuff so much. The last thing that gets kind of academic here, because it is kind of academic, is when we talk about cultural mismatches. That there are things that just as a part of culture, we will look at certain words and kind of impugn different meaning on it. Because we all know there's the thing I said, and then there's the thing that I implied. You know, there, there's the thing that, you know, may be easy for you to take away from it. And if you want to really gaslight somebody really well, you can turn around and say, well, I didn't say that. When in reality, everybody else in the room is going, right, but you did. You did say that. And you see this stuff in the Bible as well. One of the uh, words that we end up seeing in the Bible over and over again, especially in the New Testament, is chesed. 
And what this word means, in addition to having one of those chas that makes you feel very like, you know, very authentic, is it is a word that translates very literally to loyalty and faithfulness and devotion. And all of those words are things that I think we all agree are kind of related to each other. But there's a little difference between uh, being loyal to somebody versus maybe being devoted to somebody. There's some subtle differences there, right? Being faithful to somebody versus being devoted. You know, I can be de faithful to somebody because there's something else involved. Um, since a mission or duty or something like that, that maybe is not uh, the same thing as devotion, right? But your Bible's not going to translate it any of those ways. Your Bible will translate chesed as love. And so when you go through and you read love, in the Bible, we think of love the way we think of love. We think of love like homework and both the store and the movies. Like we think of, you know, love in that kind of context, you know, kind of romantic or maybe even like a family-based kind of thing where I'm just doing something out of the love of my heart. When in reality, there's almost this sense of obligation to it when you look at it in their context. So you see the cultural context actually starts kind of shifting the meaning of some of these verses and maybe even causes it to apply to our own lives in a different way because we're able to get kind of around this word that was used in the Bible. So I already talked about why it's important to have something with you uh, and, and kind of the main example that I guess I'll give to you is that when I was in, in my studies, I studied a decent amount of Latin was my kind of big thing. And so when I was studying that, one of the things that a lot of Latin students will have to study is this commentary, Di Bello Gallico, which is the commentary on the Gaelic Wars. Is Julius Caesar going and committing a bunch of horrible war crimes in Gaul, modern day France and everything. Uh, but in the course of doing all of that, um, you, you're, you're translating it. And what you end up finding is that you really have to have something beside you to help you understand what's going on. Because frequently there's a couple of different things you could, you could take out of a sentence just straight up in Latin, but then you kind of put it beside somebody who goes like, well, what I can tell you was going on like elsewhere in Julius Caesar's world was this, 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 this. So we use this phrase, he meant that. Um, so before we get into a couple of examples, I just want to kind of put this out there that you have to be careful. Like what you should take out of all this is that you have to be careful when it comes to looking at the Bible, the way you read it in an instant, and then automatically assuming that your sense of understanding, that your sense of wisdom and your sense of knowledge about it is the end all be all of what's there. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But you have to be willing to kind of put, I guess, our own sense of intellectual pride to the side and be willing to acknowledge that maybe there's something else that's in here. And it's acknowledging that there's that sense of unknown that actually causes us sometimes to go deeper with our faith. To read something that we've read time and time and time and time before, but then to stop and look at it and then say, you know what, I, I think there's actually something deeper in here, maybe a different spin, a different application that's hitting my life differently. That's not to say that the scriptures can be innovated on or anything like that. Again, the scripture is inerrant the way it was intended or inspired to be written down. God meant something when he was inspiring these people to write down these words. But the mysteries for us is trying to get to what that thing is. And so I would point to you this in Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your, in all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. I think it's especially true when it comes to reading things that we've seen time and time again in the Bible 
where uh, you know we kind of assume that there's nothing left in there that we haven't already seen. Uh, sometimes like you'll, you'll, you'll see people like this, that it's like their sense of understanding the Bible they have determined is like, that's it. That is the end all be all of how things work. And I know something that I mentioned, uh, um, I think I mentioned it last week, but I know that uh, I said it's, it's kind of come up some of our con- some of my conversations with people is that I always challenge people and say, if you want to know if you have a pride issue, then just challenge yourself with this little mental exercise. In a given <laughs> subject, a given thing, can you stop and think of a time when you were presented with new information or maybe, maybe more complete information? And as a result of that, the opinion you held before, you changed. And if you are looking and you could say, no, I don't, I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever, ever looked at this thing or this subject or this area of my life and ever changed my mind, then I'd say, then I would suggest you have a pride issue. You might be the nicest person on the face of the earth and everything. You might be super gentle. You might be, you might be Nancy, just because I can't think of a more gentle person in the room right now. Uh, you know, but if you're sitting here saying, I can't ever think of anything that I've ever done in my, or that, that, that anybody's ever presented me, it's causing me to change my mind, then I would say, then you have a form of pride going on. And that pride might be keeping you from seeing some things that are cool in the Bible. And these cool things in the Bible, I think, fall in three different categories, okay? There's things that are trivial, that's cool. That maybe maybe helps me see the Bible a little bit differently. Maybe makes it a little bit more real. It doesn't change the theological impact, but it's cool. There's things that are kind of nuanced where it might actually change how that verse hits a little bit. It might change how that story relates to me. But then there's sometimes some profound things that I think we end up missing. And it's the reason why I think there's value in going through and doing the hard Bible study kind of thing. Yes, listening to commentaries, but also maybe even doing some, some things we would even consider a little bit academic. You know, a lot of what I'm talking about right here is what uh, you'll hear referred to and what I'll talk about a lot is like hermeneutics, which is like my favorite theological thing to geek out about. So an example of a trivial thing, uh, something where you miss something that's kind of cool. We'll talk about this. And some of you guys have have heard me talk about some of these examples before, so just kind of roll with it. But in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4, we end up reading this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by you. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, when you look at this, you can easily look at some of the language in here and like you can you can take a message from this, right? There's not a whole lot of interpretation here where you say, got it, I'm not supposed to brag about my giving, right? But there's some kind of interesting things in here that I think, you know, again, if you really start digging into stuff and looking for deeper meaning, you can actually see. So for example, you look in here and there's this mention in here of the trumpets. And when it talks about the trumpets, something that I know I've mentioned in, you know, messages in the past is that in front of the synagogue, what you would have is you would actually have these brass containers that were conical in shape and they kind of fluted at the top. And what people would do is they would go and they get their $100 bill and they'd break it down into pennies. So they'd have this big bag of pennies and then they'd pour them down the big metal trumpet so it'd make this loud clanging commotion, right? And in doing that, everybody would go, man, did you hear how much that person gave? That person is very holy. They're they're a very, very righteous individual. And this was a practice that a lot of people, especially wealthy people, would do because they could, right? Is you would go and you'd impress all of the all the plebs around you everywhere, you know, who couldn't afford anything. And so when you start looking at that, you can start seeing that there's not just a 
a metaphor here of what Jesus is talking about, saying like, hey, just kind of generically speaking, you know, conceptually speaking, don't be braggadocious about how you, how you give. Instead, there were actually specific behaviors he was actually calling out here. And it may seem like a trivial point, but I think it kind of makes it, you know, maybe hit a little bit different because you look at it and you say that Jesus was getting very literal with them and saying that, you know, there is an, there, there's an actual thing that's going on. And I think if you take that, you really start digging into it deeper and deeper, that would cause you an understanding that would cause you to look at that and say, we don't have that per se in our society, but what do we have in our society? Like, do we have where things where people will sit here and, and throw out there to the world, look at, look at how magnanimous I'm being right now. You know, you kind of look at the, uh, when people make jokes about uh, sometimes short-term mission trips and how people will go and do these mission trips, but uh, you know, a big part of it is uh, they'll say like, oh, I got to make certain to get pictures for the Facebook page because otherwise uh, Jesus, Jesus didn't see it, you know? So you got to make certain to put that out there. Uh, that's kind of a kind of a kind of funny example, but people do this kind of stuff all the time. It's one of the reasons why as a church, I've always kind of said that I, I'm very cautious and very hesitant to ever mention whenever we give money to some cause or something like that. And I know here recently there were a couple things that I shared, but uh, you know, I, I'm always very cautious about that because I look at this and go, are we sounding our own trumpets, you know, by kind of uh, uh, putting ourselves on a pedestal? So, I mean, it's, it's something that I think causes you to maybe look at the verse and take a little bit of a deeper meaning. It may seem trivial, but there's other things too that are a little bit more nuanced. So what are we talking about when we talk about being nuanced? Well, Charlene brought something up to me that I thought was uh, kind of interesting. It was a question that came out of a uh, came out of a Bible study they were doing. And anytime she sends me a message, especially if it comes after an event they just had like at the building or something, I always kind of clinch for a second going, oh no, something's leaking again or something's broken or something like that. Uh, but no, she was like, we, we had like a, like a Bible question. It's like, oh, I love these. I love these. Give me the Bible question. She said, what is the difference between the first and the second commandments? And I was like, ooh, I like this one. Uh, all right, so real quick, let's go look at what these first commandments are. I'm gonna go to the, the, the version Deuteronomy, okay? So Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 8. Uh, again, use your, use your uh, telescope to see it on the screen. Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, first and second commandments. First one, I am the Lord your God, right? He states this is who I am and says, do not have other gods besides me or before me, depending on your translation. The other one is, do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything, blah, 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 blah. These two things are important because you have to remember this. And this is where I think sometimes, you know, again, our, our very like 21st century way of thinking about the Bible gets a little bit shattered and everything. Um, most of these people were pagans, like polytheists. And so it's weird to think of the Hebrew people as believing in multiple gods. But I want you to think about this. Monotheism was weird. There was a point in time in Egypt where one of the pharaohs tried to convert everybody over to monotheism and it didn't go well. 
that it was just an odd, peculiar idea to, to say that you had one God. And so all these people were coming out of this society, were surrounded by other individuals, other cultures that believed in all these other gods. And then you also have to consider this, that even within the Jewish way of thinking about things, the Hebrew way of thinking about things that would persist, even in the new land, you realize in the Old Testament, you don't have demons. Why don't you have demons in the Old Testament? Well, it was because of this. They absolutely believed in demons, but they weren't demons. They were the enemy's gods. So you see, you can see that polytheism kind of popping up in there. When you really stop and think about it, what's the difference between a demon, this kind of uh, somewhat spiritual, uh, supernatural type of thing that somebody else's God, and believing it is this lesser thing, this evil thing over here that is something that has this label of supernatural, heavenly kind of thing, versus saying a demon? What's really the difference besides some nuance in our language. But this is how they thought. And the reason why I bring this up is because the first of the second commandments are saying two very different things. The first thing is saying other spiritual forces that they're out there. It's not saying don't believe that they exist. It's saying don't have any other gods before me. So in other words, understanding that the other spiritual forces that exist, we are to understand that God is supreme and that God is number one. I think for a lot of Christians, especially Christians who have different thoughts about things like saints and other heavenly hosts and stuff like that, sometimes they can very quickly get into an area where you start having other spiritual entities that you almost put on a pedestal or go to before you go to God. If you're doing that, are you not violating the first commandment because you're violating it in a, in a very almost a very literal way to how the people back in that day and age were the second commandment isn't talking about other spiritual beings it's about things that you make of your own hands so when you look at that first commandment people will say well the first commandment saying you shouldn't have any other gods so you don't want to worship your job you don't want to worship the dollar you don't want to worship all that i look at that and go like yeah that's all true but that's not the first commandment that's the second commandment the first commandment is you need to understand that there are other supernatural forces that exist besides just simply god and god alone that's why you have demons and that's where there's angels and all this other, there's all this kind of other stuff and we have to understand that there is a pecking order and that God is at the top of it and that because God is at the top of it our faith has to be found in God and in God alone not any other thing that's the first commandment and then the second commandment is don't create your own things to worship so once again, you can see how when you really dig into the context of the people who were writing the stuff down, you go like, huh, okay, th there's kind of an interesting point in there that maybe I didn't really take away in the past, that there is a distinction between these two things, and there's stuff that I can take away when I actually acknowledge what that distinction is. But that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting, but to me, where we start getting into the profound is where it gets really, really interesting. And there are many, many, many different things that I, I, I wish I could sit here and go, go into. Um, I don't know, maybe make a good Bible study or something. But uh, one of the other things that is one of my favorite profound things that you end up seeing that is a matter of translation is this event that takes place whenever Moses is talking to the burning bush. And I have to say, I was telling uh, my, my parents and telling Meredith last night that I, I was watching what I think is um, a... a Probably, I, I feel safe in saying, I think it's the best piece of media that has been created to recreate events of any biblical story. And it's not The Chosen, and it's not the thing that the History Channel did, even though I think both of those are very good. Uh, it is the animated, I think, DreamWorks movie from like the late 90s that was The Prince of Egypt. 
and The Prince of Egypt is an amazing movie. Uh, first of all, just artistically, it's an astounding movie because there was this interesting period of time where things had not quite gone computerized. And there's so much attention to all the little nuances in there of like how they created things and all that. And one of the things that is so profound in the story of the burning bush that you end up seeing in that movie is God speaking. And when you hear it, it's not like just the voice. It's not like one voice playing God. What they actually did is they got the entire cast, every character in the movie and they had them say the same lines and they put it on top of each other because they said we are created in God's image. So they wanted the voice to be the image of every person in the movie. Well, like a crazy little thing, right? But when I was sitting here and I was watching this scene, because it's a, a, just an amazing scene, the way that they portray it, to me, what I love so much about it is how you see God portrayed in there and how it's, you know, you know, you see Moses turning around and, and I think emoting what we see in the text of Exodus, you know, with that sense of doubt and almost that sense, uh, sense of uh, exasperation about like, you're asking me to do the impossible and I don't know how you could possibly ask me to do all this stuff. And, and one of those questions that he asks is basically saying, uh, these, Hebrew, these Hebrew people have been sitting here in bondage for 400 years. You're going to tell me, you're going to have me go tell them that, that a God, Again, polytheists like a God, you know, their God has told them they're going to take them out of Egypt. But who, who is this God? We have tons of gods. The Egyptians have all these gods. Some of us talk about these gods. Well, who are you? What is this God? And so this is what you end up seeing here in Exodus 3 verses uh, uh, 13 through 15. It says, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. The reason why this is so crazy is because so many individuals will take this, and I, I've even heard very like you know very academic uh, preachers and pastors and everything kind of take this and start talking about the that the I am who I am is where you start getting into like there are certain like Hebrew words in there where you get the uh, Yahavah uh, like the syllables of you know that like I am who I am which is where you get Yahweh starts coming in there and all that and Jehovah and you start getting all these words derived from this from this moment, but to me what is more interesting is digging into the context of what's actually being written down here. When it says, I am who I am, it's a declarative statement. And the statement is something that doesn't have, we were talking before about having like, you know, one word for something and multiple words for something. There's not a single way of looking at it. And some English translations will translate a little bit different, but that I am who I am translates into multiple different versions of this phrase that I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I intend to be what I intend to be. I purpose to be what I purpose to be and several other variations of this phrase. And so when you end up looking at this, what you actually have God turning around and saying at Moses saying, I want you to tell me your name. I want you to define yourself. Is God responding with the way of saying, I cannot be defined. I will be whatever I want to be. I will be whoever I want to be. I will be exactly what I intend to be in the time that I intend to be it. There's actually this very profound thing in this name that it's the, when it says like, even in your translations, it'll capitalize I am. They'll say, I am has sent you. That thing which intends what it intends has sent you. So there is this actually great 
picture of God's dominion and God's power and God's inability to be confined in anything that we can understand in this phrase in and of itself of God saying that I am going to be precisely what I need to be. There's this statement of faith in there and of hope in there that anytime we look at our own God to understand that we may not understand who God is in a tragedy or we may not understand where God is in a hard time or that it may be easy for us to overlook God whenever we end up in a time where we're experiencing a great victory. But we have to understand that just because we cannot pinpoint and define where God is in something does not mean that he is not there exactly where he intends to be. And so there is this great message of faith that takes place as God is talking to Moses and telling you, I'm going to ask you to go out and step out on a tremendous display of faith. And you are going to have to understand that I am has sent you to go do this thing. It's kind of a profound statement that comes out of just a couple words in your English translation, but it's something where you can see that kind of steeped in the culture and steeped in the, the hermeneutics, the language, the lexicon, and all this kind of stuff that we end up having to struggle through in the Bible, that there's this far deeper meaning of who our God is, not just to the, the Hebrew people, but to us today. When we sit here, we dig just a little bit below how we as 21st century Americans are reading our translation of the Bible that we went out to the store and bought one day. And so as you're looking at this, it's something where I encourage all of you to actually be willing to do the difficult thing and dig into things. When you see something that looks odd, even if you see something that looks oh too comfortable and familiar, to actually look at it, to study it, to like meditate on it, and to see if there's not something else that God is also communicating to you below the, the surface of what we've been taught in the past. But in doing this, I have to kind of I guess, end at, at why it's still necessary to go through that effort. Because th this can sound like it's very um, uh, intimidating. It can almost seem like it's gatekeeping the Bible a little bit to say like, well, only certain people can understand the Bible. And that's absolutely not true at all. I mean, we covered a couple examples here where if, even if you just do that surface level read, there's truth there for your own life. Anyone can v gain value from the scriptures. But I would say this, you have to take hold of what we end up seeing written in 2 Timothy. And it's this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every work. I bring this up because there in verse 17, when you end up seeing that so that the man of God may be complete, that being the entire purpose of digging into the scriptures, that word complete is artrios. That's the Greek word that starts talking about being, being fitted for something, being, being made for an intended purpose or an intended use. And I think that's how we have to look at our Bibles. We have to look at the scriptures not as a way of sitting here and proving our, our, our degree of piety, that if I know the most scripture, then I am the most pious individual among my friends. And we have to not necessarily look at it as 
like a textbook where it's like, you know, there's a right answer and a wrong answer for us to, you know, kind of juice out of it. And the only reason why I say that, even though there is an ultimate truth and there is ultimate correctness in what God has intended for our lives, sometimes our finite mind simply can't get to it or we may not understand it. There are things that of this world we may not fully understand until one day we're sitting in heaven before our creator where we can, you know, are not kind of limited by whatever our, our, our worldly minds and bodies can do. But we have to understand that it's worth the struggle to dig into it, not so that we can sit here and prove ourselves or so that we can be an A-plus student, but so that we can be fitted and we can be readied for whatever work it is that Christ has called us to do. For some of us, that may involve digging deep, 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 into what the scriptures have in store for us. For some of us, it may be not needing to go that deep, but God speaking some sort of conviction into our hearts based on what we're reading. Regardless of what it is God has for you and what, what degree of depth and academic knowledge and all that kind of stuff is needed for you for your purpose, you don't get there unless you're willing to actually do the hard thing and to actually stop and read the Bible and not just read the Bible to get through it, but to read it and to meditate on it and to take it and internalize what God is communicating to you. So you read there, right there in verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The scriptures are something that are beautiful and they're even more beautiful when we're willing to disarm our own sense of pride, take off the own guards that we tend to put on things when we read them today and instead are open to what God is communicating to us not through our truth, but through God's truth, through God's unchanging truth that he intended when he inspired individuals thousands of years in the past and as he still inspires us today. Let's pray. Father God, we, we ask that you help us to understand the Help us to understand what it is that you are trying to communicate to us through the scriptures. Help us to be able to cut through all the difficult things, the big words and the places and the, the, the timelines and all, all that kind of stuff. And help us to be able to have the, the, the wisdom, to have the discernment, to, to have the resources and the people around us to understand what it is you are communicating to us. Father God, we pray that you would help us to be convicted as we need to be convicted by the things that, that are intended to convict and that you would help us to be built up by the things that you've provided us, that you've intended to build us up. Help us to be willing to look at all aspects of our faith and not make out of it what we would will, but instead are willing to, to be humble and to sit back and see what you will in our lives and in our studies of your scriptures. Help illuminate the truth and Help to help us overcome the weaknesses in our own minds by, by revealing to us the, the, the path that, that you show us in our day-to-day -day lives. Help use the scriptures to be an integral part of our journey as we grow closer to you. And help us to be individuals that don't trust in our own wisdom, but instead are willing to always be ready for some new, new wisdom or new knowledge that you have for us in a given season. We pray all these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.